0: If there has ever been a morning in which we want to privilege the words of the Word, it's this morning, this morning that we are told that the words of the Lord are spoken with authority. I'm thankful that Mark and the elders at Crosspoint Coast lead us well in that word to remember where the authority comes from, and this morning... That all of us together, not just the elders, but the whole of the partnership, the whole of the gathering of the congregation would privilege the word by giving our attention to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28 this morning. Let's pay attention to what we find there. In this passage, as we continue our sermon series through the gospel of Mark, working our way slowly and intentionally through this fast-paced book, paying attention to what we find here in this morning's passage, we find Jesus' words and deeds and how they demonstrate his authority over all aspects of creation. This is the launching of a major theme that runs throughout the whole of the book of Mark Jesus' authority over everyone and everything. We see Jesus both in our passage this morning teaching with authority. And we see him rebuking a demon with authority. Authority. Now there's a word for you. There's a concept that we don't really care for much in our present day. A concept that is often maligned and rejected in our present culture. So many in our culture reject all authorities but the authority of the self. Now, when Jesus arrives in the synagogue in Capernaum, none who were present were able to argue with the reality that Jesus had authority in word and deed, that there was an authority in the room that was outside of themselves, and he was speaking on that day. And he was commanding, and it worked, because he had authority. My prayer for us this morning is that we as well, you too, would be confronted with the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I know many of you know it. I know many of you could confess it. I pray this morning that you would be confronted by the authority of Jesus Christ. This morning, that you would submit to his teaching and that you would experience and know and be renewed in the reality of his cleansing power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are God. As we've already confessed, that you have authority over everyone and everything. Not just by creation, but by reality of who you are and your active involvement in the world. That you are the authority. And your word is the means by which you exercise your authority. Your word spoken in that room that day in Capernaum. Your word spoken to a demon. And your word spoken today through our remembering, our reading of your word. We pray that we would privilege your authority to the place that it belongs. Thank you, Lord. Do this by your Spirit. Exercise your authority over your people this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, we're going to actually begin with a pretty long introduction. We're going to pay attention to some of the context of the passage. Look right at the beginning, right in verse 21. It says, And they... That is, Jesus and these recently called disciples went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. This is the context, this is the setting within which this entire passage takes place, this entire event of Scripture. It begins with the phrase, they went into Capernaum. Jesus, he's just called these first disciples to himself and they're following him and they are going together into the synagogue and he immediately, Mark says, one of his favorite words, especially in these first chapters of the gospel, he immediately embarks on his ministry of teaching and we know what he was teaching. He's already told us, he's teaching, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's already told us this, but here we have the first record, perhaps not the first time, but definitely the first time as Mark tells it, just after the calling of the disciples, they go to Capernaum and he immediately begins teaching. We have the first record of Jesus' teaching ministry. And that ministry takes place in Capernaum they went to Capernaum. They were already at the Sea of Galilee, and now they enter this city that is nearby the Sea of Galilee, right on the coastline there at the very north edge of this great sea, a great market industry, a commercial center, a large influential city of Capernaum. Capernaum is actually a Hebrew compound phrase. The Hebrew compound phrase is the phrase, the village of Nahum, Capernaum, all right? The village of Nahum, which as I read that, I'm like, well, that's interesting. Let's keep going. Then I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to go pay attention to Nahum while my attention is brought to his name. If this is the village of Nahum, let's find out what we find if we begin reading Nahum. And I started right at the beginning. And here's what we found. I didn't get to verse six before I heard these words. Nahum 1, six and seven. Who shall stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The message that Nahum brings, along with many of the prophets, if not all of the prophets, the central to the message is the message of that the Lord is coming. And when they speak about the Lord coming, they speak about the day of the Lord. And and because we've seen the day, because we've seen the the day when Jesus came and his his very humble birth and his, his work not to... Be served, but to serve. We see his humility in obedience to the Father and in the cross. We can begin to think that this is all that there is to see about the coming of the Lord, that the day of the Lord is a day of humble coming. But this is not so. If you pay attention to the teaching of the whole of the scriptures on the day of the Lord, what we see is that the day of the Lord will be a day of judgment a day of indignation, heat, and fire. Friends, that hasn't changed. This is still true if the word is true. It is still true that the day of the Lord is a day of indignation, judgment, heat, and fire. Nahum is true, and we're reminded very quickly about this if we just pay attention to where it is that Jesus went. But then we see with, with barely, it's the same paragraph, all right? Same thought process. We see right at the outside, we see what, what Nahum is, is referring to when he, he immediately goes into from this heat and fire to the Lord is good. We see that right at the outset of Jesus' ministry, we find him doing something that seems quite different than what Nahum speaks about in that first verse that I read. The Lord came preaching good news. It turns out that when the Lord appears, the the passage of Nahum is reversed. We see Jesus describing the means by which we might take refuge in him, so that we might not receive the fire and indignation that he comes to bring in judgment. The good news is right there in Nahum. We don't have to wait for the appearing of the Lord to already hear the mystery of the gospel, not yet revealed, but the mystery of the gospel tucked away in the prophets. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. What is Jesus preaching? He's holding out for us what the prophet of Nahum has already spoken. He's holding out good news. Jesus is the mystery that's tucked away in the prophets, revealed for the people. That the Lord is good. The Lord will come. And that day will be a great day of judgment. But before he comes, he's going to enter the village of Nahum. And many other villages. And he is going to preach the gospel by which many will take refuge in him. Prior to the day of the Lord. This is a powerful reminder of grace and power which is in our God. This is our Lord, that we have a simple statement that he entered the village of Nahum. This is where he went. And Nahum tells us who it is that entered that village that day. Now it tells us that they went The disciples and Jesus went into Nahum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, the synagogue. There appears to have been in this village of Nahum, this Capernaum, there appears to have been very good relations between the Jews and the Gentiles in Capernaum. We actually have a reference to this synagogue, likely the same synagogue that Jesus enters here, speaking to Jesus about a centurion, a Gentile Roman centurion whose servant was sick, in Luke chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, it says, He, that is the centurion, is worthy to have Jesus do this for him, the Jews say. He's worthy to have Jesus heal his servant, for he, that is the centurion, loves our nation. And he is one who built our synagogue who built for us our synagogue. There appears to be a good relationship between at least some of the authorities in Capernaum, these occupying authorities, and the Jews who are in Capernaum. Capernaum would become, for Jesus, a base of operations in this northern part of Israel. As we'll see next week, Peter's home was in Capernaum. Jesus likely stayed there many times. We'll see him enter there just in next week's passage, which is a part of the same episode, by the way. You see the word immediately showing up over and over throughout this whole of chapter 1. Jesus is in these first few episodes, seems to be carving out a bit of space in the world. A little bit of space out of which he would preach and work throughout the entire region. And he's doing a bit of cleansing work. He's cleaning house. He's building an office for himself right there in Capernaum for the preaching of the word. The relative safety and provisions of this large commercial Fishing city seems to be an excellent place for the launching point of Jesus' ministry. And here Jesus is in the synagogue where he launches his teaching. The very place Jesus and all the apostles would always begin their ministry in a new city was that they would bring the gospel to the synagogue. Jesus in the synagogue. But it's not all roses. It seems to have been a relatively good experience for the Jews in this city. But for Jesus, when he enters the synagogue, it is not a peaceful day. Nor is it very often a peaceful day for Jesus in many of these interactions. This is the first of many of Jesus' interactions with the cultural religion of the day. There are two primary streams in the Jewish religion of the day into which Jesus enters. Now, you have to understand, these are very broad strokes. They are not true of every individual in the culture. But broadly speaking, these are two basic categories for what was prevalent in the culture of the day. That the synagogue is, first of all, influenced by the... the, Pharisees, and that's what we see here. We have a a very city-focused gathering of of 10 or more Jewish men of 13 or older could form a synagogue, and those synagogues were highly influenced by the scribes and the Pharisees in the day. And you see this very on-the-ground religious practice and devotion to the Word taking place in the synagogue. And then, we'll see later in Mark, we have another stream that is centered in the temple, not centered in each of the cities in their synagogues, but centered in the temple. And this was most influenced by the Sadducees. The Sadducees, it's very sad to see that they were very influenced by the culture of the day. Where the Pharisees were influenced by the word a great deal, but perhaps misunderstanding much of how to teach, the Sadducees were influenced by the culture and had a lot of influence in the culture. And so the temple had become influenced not by the word, but by the command of God or his worship, but was increasingly influenced by the culture that was around them, particularly the Greek culture. Now, neither of these streams of religious leadership were particularly prepared for the coming of the Messiah, and it's for that reason that we see Jesus often encountering situations like what he encounters in this synagogue. There was a self-righteousness, and a worldliness that seemed to have shared the same space. That's not new. (laughs) And that hasn't faded. That remains a problem. Embodied in these two religious influences, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is this self-righteousness and worldliness that often mingles its way into the teaching and practices of religion. In all places, our passage is just the beginning of how Jesus' teaching and authority is going to confront self-righteousness and confront worldliness and confront those who have falsely shepherded it. Immediately, Jesus enters. You know, another thing that we can see right away, and like I said, this is a long introduction to a relatively short passage. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Well, what is he going to find in the synagogue? He's going to the Jews, friends. This is who he is, and this is where he is going with the gospel. Before we make the error that has been so often made throughout history, and particularly in the church, to write off the synagogue and the Jews as only a people of error, don't miss where Jesus went. And what did he find This is the very people, not only to be the first to receive Jesus' authoritative correction, but also to receive his cleansing grace. Don't miss what happens in the passage. They heard his teaching with authority, and he cleansed a previously demon-possessed man The Jews, since Abraham and Moses, the kings and the prophets, have long been not only the first to receive the word, but also the means through which the word would be brought to all the peoples of the earth to this day. Why would we disparage today that ministry? Let us not be a people as we study much error in a people. Let us not be surprised that we would find error and sin among a people. Let us be amazed that God has used this very people to bring this good news to us. The word that we have received today from Jesus himself, let us note, comes through the Jews. What teaching of Jesus, serious question, what teaching of Jesus do we have that did not first go to the Jews? What teaching of Jesus do we have that was not first written down by a Jewish man of faith, often at great cost to himself, so that we today might hear and believe? Friends, there should be a very natural human emotion that should be rising up in you right now. Thank God for that. Even this letter that we call the Gospel of Mark is in at least in part to the Jews who are part of the church in Rome. And even as we hear this account throughout the Gospel of Mark of Jesus confronting the religious environment that's ripe with self-righteousness and worldliness, often antagonistic to the gospel that Jesus preaches, let us also give thanks that the Spirit of God has caused Jesus' teaching to reach some of these ears and some of these hearts of these men and women, that the gospel would go out from among them into the ends of the earth and somehow, by grace, make its way to Brevard County, or for me, to Evansville, Indiana, and to this little house in the center of Evansville, and I heard and I believed. And we can give thanks. And who knows? Who knows once this demon-possessed man heard and was cleansed. Who knows if he was perhaps one of those who gathered on that day of Pentecost and was sent out with the word. We've barely even begun to explore this passage and we need to move a good bit quicker through the remainder of it. But, We've already been reminded that the day of the Lord's coming is a day of judgment. But before that day, the Lord himself will preach good news so that all who take refuge in him by his power and authority will be saved. That's the gospel. By his teaching, by his person, and by his performance through the cross and resurrection. So let us go on to consider for a moment the authority of his teaching and the authority of his command in our passage today. All of 21 is set up. All of 21 is context, but friends, we got to get the context well before we move on. So we move to 22. And they, as those who were in the synagogue hearing the teaching, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes teaching. What did Jesus immediately do? Don't miss this. Jesus' business, Jesus' labor on this day, we've already been told that this is his business, what he's doing. His business is teaching. We often talk about Jesus' ministry in word and in deed, but don't miss the fact that his first deed, his first act, was the act and the deed of teaching. This is the business of Jesus. This is a context into which his authority was recognized and the powers around him began to be confronted not by his deeds, what we often refer to as his deeds, but rather they were confronted by the deed of his teaching. Friends, that ought to elevate for us the role of teaching and the power of teaching in the church. Jesus went teaching, and his teaching confronted the powers around him, and the people are changed in the midst of that power. What did Jesus teach? We're already told in verse 15, and you might even want to make a little note in the margin. Verse 15, he's proclaiming the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel He's preaching the gospel, the very gospel that he came to reveal and to perform. This episode at the beginning of Jesus' ministry has Jesus' central ministry of teaching of the gospel as the context for the display of his authority. And there's that word again. It's a word that's in the passage. This is an important one. I'm going to give you a Greek word just real quick. It's this relatively simple one. It's exousia. It's actually, again, it's a compound word where we had the village of Nahum. This is exousia, or out of being, or from Substance, what The etymology, the sort of the root of the meaning of the word, that it's translated authority or power consistently, just about any time you find this word in Greek, it's translated and understood as authority or power. The, the, the root of that word is out of substance, out of authority from substance or essence. When Jesus is teaching, he's not drawing on something secondary, lesser, or dependent, but rather he's teaching out of a substantial, reality he's standing on the substance of the thing he's not referencing other secondary matters but rather he's teaching from a the very basic primal reality from which his teaching rises Jesus is dealing with substantial reality and therefore his teaching has authority and power When I was reading this, I thought, what is a phrase that we might use today to demonstrate this? And I thought, he's cooking with gas, right? Here's one definition of that little phrase, cooking with gas, from the suggestion, heavily advertised in the late 19th century and early 20th century, that stoves using natural gas as a fuel cook more effectively than, for instance, wood-burning or electric stoves. Jesus isn't depending on lesser things. He's cooking with gas. He's got the real substance, the real power. What he is saying is standing on something substantial, a reality that is in him. Another way to put it is what Jesus is saying, he's not offering up for consideration. He's declaring That it's true. I remember as in college, I had a campus pastor, and he had this really annoying little phrase. He'd say it very often. It was derailing for me when I would hear him. He would say this. He would say, he would begin so many of his sentences with, I believe that, and then he would go on to teach. And I remember thinking over and over again, I don't care what you believe. Now, if we were sitting down over coffee and we were just chatting together, I might be interested in hearing some of your thoughts. But you're preaching, brother. Preach! There's a difference. He was speaking out of a lesser thing, a less substantial reality, which is his faith, his belief, his understanding of the matter. I kept saying to myself, I don't care what you believe, tell me what's true and declare it. Jesus didn't walk into the room and say, I believe that, I think that. It's my understanding that the kingdom of God is at hand as I've examined the things as they stand. He's declared it's true. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not up for debate. It's not up for interpretation. It's simply true. Now compare this to the scribes of the day. In his authority, you couldn't confuse him with the other teachers, Kent Hughes calls the scribes' teaching, I love this, secondhand theology. He says that they were in bondage to quotation marks. So good. They would say things like, Rabbi Hillel says, or Gamaliel says, and at some point, what Rabbi Hillel may say, or Gamaliel may say, may be of some value. But I don't want to hear what people say unless what they said stands up with authority and truth. They were in bondage to quotation marks, but Jesus' teaching is completely different. Listen to the way that Jesus speaks when he opens up the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? You have heard it said. You've heard heard quotation marks put around things. And and he's referencing more than just what the scriptures say. He's referencing the entire traditions and quotation marks and secondary teachings that grew out of what you have heard said. What does he say? You have heard it said, but I say to you. He's going to give a substantial declarative reality You've heard a variety of interpretations, a variety of quotations, but I'm here to bring essential substance for what is real. The teaching of Jesus is the word of authority, and it's this authority by which every subsequent statement of truth must be measured. Every statement and declaration must be a repetition, a quotation mark, of this substantial Reality. Jesus does not stand in the line of the rabbis of his day, but in the line of the prophets who came before him, who say, thus says the Lord. Except for he didn't have to say that, did he? Because the Lord just thus said it. That's the difference. The first application for us is simply this. When Jesus speaks, do you listen? When Jesus speaks... Does it sound like exousia? Is it coming from an authority, a substance? Verse 22 says that the people were astonished. Don't move on too quickly from that word. The word astonished means to be amazed, to astound, to, and this is a wonderful definition, to overwhelm. Jesus' words overwhelmed their thoughts, and this ought to be so. When Jesus' words come out into your ears and your minds, does it overwhelm your heart so that you shut up and hear and receive and are changed? Does he have authority? Do you hear his authority? Or does the sound of our culture, the sound of our own thoughts cling to our control? Listen, hear, and be overwhelmed by the message of the gospel. I know I haven't preached the gospel much. Though it was in there, it was right there in Nahum. But let this message serve us as we move forward to the unpacking of the gospel to a much greater degree as we walk through the gospel of Mark. I do think that there's an application point if you don't mind me preaching to me for just a moment. You kind of watch something going on. The elders listen carefully to the teaching and preaching reality application for this passage. Phillips Brooks offers this illustration. It struck me. It's shared by Kent Hughes, he writes, the preacher teacher as a train con- is, is as a train conductor so very often, this is a mistake, He's like a train conductor that that thinks he's been to all these towns because he's announced them. But he's never actually stepped his foot off the train. Compare this to the true preacher, Kent Hughes says. Their sermons are like thunder because their lives are like lightning. That when Jesus spoke, he'd been to the kingdom and he is the king. And when he spoke, his words were like thunder because you were watching lightning. This ought to be true for the preacher as well. Another phrase that I've said along the way is the preacher ought to be like a fat cook because the preacher is so busy snacking on the meal that he's preparing for the congregation. Don't trust a thin preacher. (laughs) I'll let you do the math on that. Trust a preacher that looks like he's been snacking, like he stepped off the train and spent some time in these places. Dr. Barnhouse shares a, a, an event where he was with a friend, and the friend asked, What's your favorite symphony, Dr. Barnhouse? And Dr. Barnhouse says, Well, Brahms first. How does it go? the friend says. And Dr. Barnhouse began to whistle the main theme of the symphony a symphony. Think of the instruments. Think of the percussion. Think of the various sections and all the sounds and all the notes. And suddenly Barnhouse recalls, I was overcome with how ridiculous it was that I should be trying to communicate that great musical composition with my weak whistle. But the wonder of the human brain, my weak whistle was changed in my friend's mind into the strings and the percussion and the brass of a full symphony orchestra. Barnhouse continues, every time I stand up to teach the Bible, I'm overcome with how ridiculous it is that I should try to communicate God's word to a people I can tell you how many times I've thought this. I've thought, God, you have asked me to do something silly, and I don't want to do it. I don't want to stand up there and say a bunch of words that are just a stupid whistle, at best catching some of the notes of the melody. But I'll tell you, as a preacher, one of the things that says, you know what, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Is when I'm preaching, I'm looking out, and I can see some people, and they can hear the brass section. And they've heard it before and they know it and they've, they've heard it and they, they can remember and they call it to mind and they can hear the strings and they can hear the violins coming in. I'm just whistling a metal, melody. But they've known and stepped off the train, so to speak. They know what it's like to be there and to hear those sounds. Church, we are all ministers of the gospel. Elders... Are those who preach to the congregation. And the congregation goes out with this word that has resonated like an orchestra in our minds and hearts by the power of, not of the human brain, but of the Holy Spirit. And we go and we preach. We must be found whistling a unison melody. And may the Holy Spirit bring down his power, his fullness of the Jesus' teaching, to resound in the human soul with all the authority by which it was first preached by Jesus himself. You know that the Holy Spirit, who baptized Jesus for this ministry, is the one that is working in the heart of the person who hears you whistle the gospel. Power. Authority in the preached word. There is a power in To teaching the gospel. Because there is a power in the Christ. But there's also a power in the Christ not only to teaching, but also to command. Now the power of Jesus' word, it's put on display not only to teach, but also to powerfully command and restore. Not to teach as though offering up, but to command so that it is. Do you see? Look at verse 23. Here's how it goes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Picture the scene. See it with me. There was a man, likely, quite possibly, one of the members of the synagogue, there's little indication in here that he was somehow some raving guest. He doesn't come in like a raving lunatic. He's simply a man. Friends, let me caution us. Not all bondage looks the same. I wonder, did this man even know how much his soul had been taken captive by the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians put it? the prince of this world and the powers of dark? Did he even know just how dark and controlled by another his soul had become? Certainly he had participated in his own captivity. How many souls and how many churches are captive to this world, its ways, and its authority? I don't want to to brush over the reality of this particular reality of possession by an unclean spirit that is in our passage today, but I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask this question, is it possible that you need nothing less than the authority of God himself to command you to lay down the enslavement of this world? cling to the power of Christ. Is that possible? Is it possible that that's you? One day, that man went into a synagogue. He just went in, perhaps like he did every other week. But on this one week, it became apparent to himself and all who were there that this man was a captive a man enslaved to sin and the devil, even as he starts shouting in the middle of the teaching. I wonder, as a preacher, how many teachings was he able to endure easily? No need to shout, not really confronted. But on that day, when Jesus began to explain the gospel of the kingdom and unpack the mystery revealed, I wonder how many of those around him knew of his enslavement. I find it very likely that some knew that he was a sinner, but not a lot unlike themselves. I mean, sometimes he was arrogant or rude, wanton or greedy, perhaps perverse or crass or a slanderer like themselves. But really, such sin is kind of commonplace. It's no really big deal. It's just a little bit of worldliness, you know. But the reality is that our sins that are commonplace are the very bondage of the powers of this world. The fact that our sin is commonplace and worldly just demonstrates that our entire world is possessed, is under a foreign alien power. How in the world could such darkness be commonplace? On this day, Jesus would bring an un- enslaved man into refuge and authority of the king who is coming. Do you hear, Nahum? Now, the demon says, this unclean spirit says, what have you done with us? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What have you to do? And the answer that is expected, Nothing nothing. This man has to do with the world. He has to do with the ways of Capernaum. He has to do with complacency, self-righteousness, worldliness that was so prevalent in the day and even among the leaders of the people. He probably blended right in to the ways of the synagogue, or if he was here, perhaps he would blend in among us. But he had nothing to do with Jesus. Satan and his minions have no place, no fellowship, no similarities with Christ and his gospel. The proper answer is what have you to do with us? Nothing. Clearly. What do you have to do with us? Just leave us alone. But Jesus will quickly display that he does have one thing to do with them, and that is to cast them out and destroy the evil one. One thing and one thing only. Now, as the demon declares this, and it's not working. He has nothing to do with them except for it seems that he's going to do something to him. He says, I know who you are. He tries one more tactic. What if the demon said to you, I know who you are. I know your name. What if a demon said to you, an unclean spirit said, I know who you are. I know your name. Friends, that's a, that's a word of power and control. I would be terrified if I was about to be exposed by the evil one. But not so with the exousia of Jesus. The demon knew Jesus' name, but Jesus was not afraid because he knew who he was too. He had been tested in the wilderness, and he is the Christ, the Son of God, and unwaveringly, authoritatively so. And so we rebuked him. Look at verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The man convulsed in verse 26. He cried out and then he came out. Please note that the demon came out crying, not speaking. He didn't utter a word because Jesus has said, Be quiet. He had no more words that he had authority to say. This is true every time evil is brought into the light by the truth, darkness and all that take refuge in the shadows cannot endure the light. And so it either fights back or it has to be shut up. There is no other option. When we shine the light, when we preach the gospel, whether it be to ourselves and our own propensity to wander off into worldliness as Mark and Matt so often hold out to us the word by which to deal with our sin. Or to another, we ought to expect that there will be convulsing and that there will be cries, but there will be no words of any authority or power. For the strong man has been shut up and he must flee at the power of the command of the Creator, the Redeemer. Now consider the man it would be easy to turn this passage into a simple teaching on the authority of Jesus. And, and it is the main reason why this passage is in here for us, is to hold out for us the authority of the teaching of Jesus and the authority and power of the command of Jesus. But this, state, this passage is not merely a statement on the authority of Jesus, it's also a passage on restoration. Jesus does not only have authority and power but he uses the power to do what? Set the captive free. Friends, this isn't just a passage on the power and authority of Jesus. This is a passage that the Lord is good. And the Lord delivers. He cleanses. He uses his power to set the captive free. Jesus is a teacher And Jesus' authority is not only in his teaching, it's in his person, and in his person, the demon's free, and a man is left free for the first time in his life. What is this, the people say. What is this, when they were amazed. Is there a better question for us to ask when confronted with Jesus this morning? Jesus himself, later on in Mark, is gonna ask his disciples, who do you say that I am What is this, he says? Well, it's authority. It's teaching with authority. It's commands, commands that are obeyed by the greatest powers that the people could imagine apart from God. It's authority, and it's the presence of the king. Do you hear the words of Jesus this morning? Will you allow the words that we've spent time in already that we'll spend time in in the coming weeks, words of a Jesus who is the perfect one, who is the only righteous one, you self-righteous one. The, The one who brings the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world, you worldly one. Are you listening? Are you being confronted by the gospel? And do you see the one who says, take refuge in my cross? so that you might not receive the righteous judgment that is coming upon the self-righteous and upon the worldly wicked. You can take refuge in his cross, be cleansed, be free, and belong to God and his kingdom. The passage ends with Jesus' fame spreading throughout the region. Why did it spread? Because he spoke with authority and he cleansed. Has Jesus spoken with authority among the people of God here in Brevard County and at Cross Point Coast? Have you been cleansed? Do you know the forgiving grace of God that you aren't just an exercise in the authority of God to display his power? You are the kindness of God to display his grace. Ought not his fame spread among us? Who have you told? Who knows? of the day that he cast out worldliness, forgave your sin, and is working his grace in you. May his fame spread. May we sing a little louder this morning. And if you are still remaining in worldliness or self-righteousness, if you remain there, know you don't have to be demon-possessed to know that the judgment of God is real. Friends, take refuge in the God who is good. Heavenly Father, I pray that this little whistling this morning has caught a bit of the tune and your spirit would cause a symphony to sing in a heart today. I pray that you would cast out worldliness by your authority, that your spirit can actually come into a heart change a will that is bent on this world to look at the Christ, to hear his gospel, repent of sin, believe and be baptized. I pray that that miracle would happen today and where that miracle has already happened may your fame spread may it spread in our hearts may it spread in our midst in our congregation and in our neighborhoods and our households and our communities and workplaces may your fame spread because you are worthy you are powerful your judgment is sure and you are good your refuge is strong thank you lord we trust in you for these things in that great substantial name, the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.